0: Breaking down all of this, there's two main questions when I'm first talking to a, a potential borrower. What you know, it, don't, don't let me tell you what your maximum amount that you can qualify is because it's probably going to be more than you want to spend. What's your monthly payment comfort level? So basically what we're looking at is everything but utilities, principal interest, taxes, insurance, mortgage insurance. What's that monthly payment comfort level and how much do you want to spend for the transaction? How much do you have available that you're comfortable letting go of? for down payment and closing costs, and from those two numbers, we can really guide you towards a range.
1: You're listening to the Philly Proper Podcast. Meet the experts developing Philadelphia's real estate market right now. If you're looking for insights into the city's changing landscape, you're in the right place. Stay tuned to hear the personal stories and experiences of developers large and small. Be sure to join the Philly real estate community and visit phillyproper.com for project information, episode highlights, and more. Hi, and thanks for joining us on the Philly Proper podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Blessington, and today's guest is one of my favorite lenders in the city of Philadelphia. This is Rob Wishnick. He's the Senior Vice President of Guaranteed Rate and Q- ever purchased property here in Philadelphia, or if you're in the industry, I'm sure you've worked with him. Rob, thank you so much for joining me this morning.
0: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so Rob, you are the Senior Vice President of Mortgage Lending at Guaranteed Rate. What exactly does that mean?
0: Sure. So <laughs> I uh, I run a team. I'm a loan officer, meaning that I qualify people for obtaining uh home financing and i uh, run a team that uh we provide mortgages to the public and uh try to get as uh, many people approved and into homes as possible at at, uh, Mm -hmm. favorable terms so
1: right and you guys are quite busy right it is it is
0: this has been the perfect storm of uh hot housing market and record low rates. And it's just been, like I said, the perfect storm of uh, uh, everyone um, that has a mortgage. Basically it's it's time to at least evaluate what you've got. And if you don't have a mortgage, it's a good time to be buying because those record low rates equal low payments.
1: Right, right. So how many, how many people do you have on your team right now?
0: Right, so we've got uh, four, uh, it's myself, and uh, four others on the operations side, and then one more business development who's uh, our most recent hire.
1: Nice, and you guys are really fast because you do everything in house. Where whereas I know a lot of lenders will sort of outsource some of the like underwriting and management. You guys handle a lot of that. Am I correct? Right.
0: Yeah. Most of the loans that we are providing um, outside of the you know traditional lending realm, um, but most of the loans that we are handling, we are <clears throat> in-house underwriting, um, and, and it's our own funds provided at closing. Um, So we were handling the the process from origination through closing.
1: Nice. And for those who are maybe new to mortgages or borrowing money in general, can you give a a brief highlight of what the underwriting process actually is?
0: Sure. So I'm the original front line when I'm talking to a customer, uh, evaluating their credit history, income, what's called a debt to income ratio, so what your uh, monthly liabilities are, including the new home you're trying to finance. Uh, Getting into all the
1: personal personal details of your own finances, Exactly, right? exactly.
0: <laughs> so, so I'm that original frontline reviewing an uh, applicant's information, <clears throat> having a keen knowledge of guidelines to see you know, what, where there may be some pain points, if any, in a file. Uh, and we start then collecting documents. We run a credit report in the beginning. So we see truly what the credit scores are, what the what the person's debts are at the moment, and uh, and then once the file is under contract, the file is going to be submitted to an underwriter to who is the actual reviewer of all the documents and the official person that would sign off on the actual approval of the loan. Right, and they
1: have to make sure that the person's personal financial information or whoever's applying for the loan actually you know, equates to the parameters under which you're willing to be lent money to. That's exactly right. right. All right. So um, can you tell me what some of those parameters are that you guys generally look for, for say like private single family residential purchase?
0: Absolutely. So there's three main, take away the, the property, the collateral for the lender. There, there's three main aspects of a borrower's financials that we're reviewing. One is your credit. Obviously, higher credit scores can equal more favorable terms or more favorable programs. Uh, Two is that debt-to-income ratio that we talked about. So what are your monthly expenses, including the home you're trying to finance? Uh, So anything that would show on a credit report is uh, are things like credit card payments, student loan payments. Um, other properties owned car loans or leases personal loans uh, and we look at those monthly expenses and then we take uh, the income portions the debt to income ratio the income portion of a person's is, of a person's portfolio is what is their monthly income are they a w-2 employee for a company getting a base salary or are they an hourly employee getting, again getting a w-2 and we take the numbers on a monthly basis. And we come up with this debt to income ratio. Right. Uh, so as long as those are within specific tolerances, usually that number's around between 43 to 50%, depending on the programs, um, where the total debts divided, monthly debts divided by monthly income don't exceed that 43 to 50%. Usually you're in business. And then the third aspect is a person's assets. So where's the money coming from that in in the case of a purchase, where's the money coming from that is being used for down payment, for closing costs, in some cases reserves. So what a reserve is, one month of reserves equals one month of your housing payment. In some cases, in some some loan cases, uh, reserves are needed to qualify. So it's those three aspects, credit, debt ratio, and your assets are the three main components of a borrower's file.
1: Awesome. And so you mentioned with with the credit score that you might qualify for certain terms and or programs. So by terms, you mean things like uh, what your actual interest rate is going to be. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more in terms of And I know it's kind of a moving target because all of those things factor into what somebody's ultimately going to be qualified for. Um, But in terms of credit and interest rate, what type of numbers would somebody be able to expect?
0: Sure. So interest rates are going to depend on, they they can move daily. So that's going to depend on down payment. That's going to depend on credit score. And it's a daily moving target based on the financial markets and, and many aspects right now. It's not just the financial markets. It's a lot of speculation. And uh, <laughs> right. so, um, so lo- if, if somebody has lower credit scores, let's say within like the 600 to 660, maybe even 680 range, there's a loan called an FHA loan um, that's typically looked at. It's a government insured loan. Uh, that helps people with bruised credit, low down payments, allows for a uh, higher amount of seller assistance uh, for closing costs. So if a, if a buyer truly has little money to get to the closing table, the seller, as part of their offer, can uh, provide some assistance there. and allows for a little more assistance. And then as you get to the higher credit score level, so the 680 plus, and and really what's considered excellent credit in the mortgage world is 740 or better, 740 middle score or better, and I'll go through middle score in a second. Um, the uh, then you're talking really conventional loans, and that's your typical Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac financing, which is um, going to have typically lesser, the higher credit scores, less uh, uh, less expensive mortgage insurance, which we can go through in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it the, the, in general the higher the credit score is typically the, the more favorable the terms meaning and not not just more favorable in the sense of necessarily a lower interest rate in some cases um, but a lower, lower overall borrowing costs nice okay so i mentioned middle score so so yeah. so there's three main credit bureaus in the united states transunion equifax and experian with mortgages you get so that you get Everyone gets three scores that has enough credit that has enough outstanding credit to actually have three scores. So everyone has three scores for mortgages. The middle score is what is used for qualification. So you could have an 800, a 760, and a 650. But as long as that middle score, whatever that middle score is, that's the the number that we're taking.
1: Nice. Now, I think, uh, does that translate into what a FICO score is? Because I feel like that's a number that gets thrown around a lot on some, you know, credit websites. Right. And things
0: so, like that. so FICO is, stands for Fair Isaac Corporation. The is one of the methodologies of one of the bureaus for scoring. So that's um, that's just one of your FICO score is one of your three credit scores. But that's the most predominantly known uh of the of the three credit scores so that's what people talk about and when you typically go to like a credit card site uh like your credit card uh, provider and they show you your credit score a lot of times they're using that fico model but there are various scoring models so when a mortgage lender pulls a credit report we're going to see a different score than if an auto lender pulls a credit report uh, or your credit card company pulls a credit report for you. It's, it's different scoring models that are used in the mortgage world versus other types of credit that you're trying to obtain. So oftentimes when we see somebody's on like a, you know, a Credit Karma type site or, or checking out their scores, oftentimes we're going to see um, a lower, a little bit of a lower score versus what they'll see on that site because it's different models being used.
1: Right, right. Okay, so so there's a huge range of the type of interest rate that people are going to get based on what their credit score is, and that's going to change pretty much on a daily basis, right? It uh, can, yeah.
0: Right like, now, we've been in the you know, you, on a typical day, we're not seeing interday rate changes or in a typical week. There's not wild swing, but we're in anything but typical times and little things, <laughs> uh, po- uh, political factors, um, COVID is having a, a big effect on rates and, and what that right. does to the, the whole state of the mortgage industry. So on a daily basis, there can be changes, but it's usually not, so, it, typically it's not such a wild, there's not many wild swings in a week.
1: Right. So people can kind of, you know, they'll go through a pre-approval process and have a rough idea of what their interest rate is going to be. And it's probably not going to fluctuate drastically. Or if it if it if we know it's going to, we'll have a little bit of heads up.
0: Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. But oh, yeah. in, you know, in, in a in a time where some people might go through, you know, in the, the real estate market that we're in right now in the Philadelphia region where uh, people are looking for homes and uh they might get shut out on a couple of places before they actually find the one and go under contract. It could be, you know, it could take a month, it could take three, four months, and over three, four months the you know, rates can change. So it's what what's a common what we hear a lot is and what we try to Educate bars when we're first talking to them is the rate the interest rate that's provided to you at, at pre-approval time or on a pre-approval is not your rate that you 're locking into. you can't lock a, into an interest rate until you 're actually under contract to a property because a lender needs to know what they 're locking you into. They need to know how right. long you're being locked into, uh, how long you need to lock in for to get you through your settlement date. They, they need to know uh, how, uh, what the loan amount is, what the purchase price is they you know what the down payment. Things like that. So um, so but that's is oftentimes people will think the letter on their pre-approval is a locked rate. And that's just not the way the mortgage industry works.
1: Right. Right. OK, well, that makes sense. So can you uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on programs? I know that you said, um, you know, credit has an effect over what you qualify for. And you did mention FHA for some of, uh, you know, for folks who are applying who might have a lower lower credit score or bruised credit of some sort. Um, what kind of programs did you mean?
0: Yeah, so uh, so there are many. There used to be a lot of different lending options, and then the mortgage bubble burst, and two thousand nine, two thousand ten really changed things where these uh, these like subprime loans um, sort of went away, like the subprime market came in and really took a hefty lion share away from f h a because now there were other products other than FHA loans which can sometimes have tighter guidelines, and these subprime loans subprime meaning not prime as in credit you're prim- being prime being like a paper. So excellent credit. Well, if you were subprime, there were other options that all went away after 2009, 2010, the mortgage bubble burst and sayonara subprime loans overnight. And now FHA really assume the role of lesser credit score borrowers. So there's three main programs that that exist today. That subprime or Alt-A, what it's also referenced as Alt-A lending has made a comeback in recent years, but it's limited. COVID sort of knocked, uh, punched it in the gut and knocked it out for a little bit. It's starting to creep back in. But for most borrowers in today's today's lending environment, there's three main loans, conventional, as we said, which is your A paper, um, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan, there's FHA, which is government insured, and there's VA if you're a veteran in the military. VA has a fantastic, typically 100% financing loan but you have to be a veteran of the military for that. So FHA, uh, you know, why would a borrower want an FHA loan? Well, again, if you have excellent credit, you're typically not an FHA borrower because overall it becomes more expensive. There's something called mortgage insurance. Mortgage insurance is when a borrower puts less than 20% down. Mortgage insurance is not homeowner's insurance. It's insurance that the borrower, the consumer pays to ensure the lender in case the borrower defaults on the loan so the consumer bears the expense and it's and with a conventional loan it's very heavily based on credit score and down payment with FHA it's pretty much a, a set amount depending on how much you put down but it only it it's only a mild swing if you put the minimum 3.5% down versus 5% or more FHA right. <laughs>
1: Is it safe to say that if you're going to be putting at least 20% down, you're probably not going to be getting an FHA loan?
0: Correct. Typically, if you're a 20% down borrower, unless there were other factors that were really like, like, like poor credit um, or uh, what else? Like a, a higher debt ratio. FHA does typically allow for a higher debt ratio than a conventional loan. So, if the debt ratio was above the conventional loan limits, then that would really be the only reason. So even with 20% down, you still have mortgage insurance with an FHA loan, which is one of the disadvantages. Right. So FHA allows for a minimum 3.5% down payment. If you, make that, if you make less than a 10% down payment on an FHA loan, the, the mortgage insurance lasts for the entire life of the loan with less than a 10% down payment. So that's one of the detractors. Oftentimes FHA loans or interest rates can carry a lower interest rate than conventional loans, which is weird. You know, uh, somebody with bruised credit seemingly can get a lower interest rate than somebody with excellent credit because sometimes FHA loans have lower rates than conventional, but there's downsides. You pay right. that mortgage insurance for the life of the loan. When you put less than 10% down, there's a single premium mortgage insurance that's that that, that you're allowed to finance so people don't feel it because they're not, paying it out of pocket, so to speak, but it's mm-hmm. a significant fee that's added into the FHA loan and it's, it's a real expense, 1.75% of the loan amount. So it's, it's, it can be a costlier loan for people, which is why a conventional option can be a better option. We're, we're really like, if somebody's on that bubble, we're seeing like, we're evaluating which is better, which is truly going to save you more money. Is it better to go conventional? Is it better to go FHA? But once nice. you get into that 620, 640, 660 range, where you, typically FHA is the only way to go.
1: Right. Okay.
0: And then there's something called jumbo loans, which is like an offshoot of a conventional loan, so to speak. So, jumbo loan, all it refers to is the loan amount. So, in the Philadelphia region, or in many regions in the country, except for what's deemed high cost areas, $510,400 is the conventional conforming loan limit. Once you go above that as a single loan, five, so 5, 10, 401, or more, you're what's in the jumbo space. And, and that used you know, to be
1: lower, right? I feel like it was at like you know, 470 Every for a year while.
0: it's evaluated. So every year for, for oh. a long time it was at 417, then it went to 424, then 473.5. So it, just, it changes. Um, every year um, there's a department called the FHFA, and they determine what that limit is. So and oftentimes, most years it won't change. Lately, it has been because prices have been on the rise. So nice. Yeah. Okay.
1: So, uh, is there a way uh, to pay off primary mortgage insurance at the closing table, or to limit the expense or duration of that insurance being due over the course of the loan? Yep.
0: So FHA no is the answer. They have hard guidelines. So so until you get to ten percent down payment. Uh, then, at that point f h a the the mortgage insurance will last eleven years ten percent or more down payment it 's eleven years, less than ten percent down it 's the life of the loan now you don 't have to be in the loan for for the entire life of the loan these are all right? none of these loans have prepayment penalties. you can refinance at any point, but it 's got to make sense refinancing isn 't free it comes with costs, so you have to evaluate is it worthwhile uh, conventional loans, yes, there is an option, so so you can choose basically three options. One is to pay monthly mortgage insurance. Two is to to pay a single fee to buy it out. And sometimes that can even be financed uh, into the loan if, if you're putting enough down. And then the third option is what's called lender paid mortgage insurance, where it's built into the interest rate that's offered. So you're taking a higher interest rate to not pay private mortgage insurance. So it's, uh, there, there are options on the conventional side. Uh, And again, the, the higher the credit, the more the down payment, the less expensive mortgage insurance is.
1: Nice. And so you're seeing, you mentioned refinancing out of a loan. So for those who aren't familiar, when you purchase a property and you get financing, you're getting a mortgage, you have set terms, but... As the rates change and they have drastically in the last year, even I I guess in the last maybe, and maybe you can clarify this, but even the last two years, I feel like I've seen rates pretty consistently drop um, from, you know, we were at like four and a half, five percent down to less than three. But there's a ton of people who are doing that right now because rates are lower than what their initial mortgage terms
0: gave them. Correct. We thought we've seen you know, really record low rates before, and now this is a whole different era. So, it, you know, when, when for years and years, people have been in three, four, five, six percent mortgages, and uh, you're talking, you know, the tip, the lion share of mortgages, the 30 fix fixes king. So it, now when you, when you hear about these numbers with a two in front of them, uh, <laughs> it, it get, gets people to call. So there's been this, this tsunami, basically, of people that are interested. Hey, even you know, I have a three percent interest rate, but I heard rates are in the twos. What does that mean? So you know, it just it gets people calling. It gets more people interested when you see these national headlines with rates starting with a two in front of them. Do I you know is it better? Do I go into a thirty-year fix? And again, if you're three percent or three and a quarter percent, going to two eight point eight seven five isn't to go through the expense you know to pay the expenses and go back to a thirty-year term. You know, it might not make sense. But again, it gets people to call. So, it, so all of that interest has really, um, the the mortgage industry wasn't really prepared for the the uh, huge influx of uh, applications that are coming in right now. So, the, the entire industry is just really um, is is going through quite a uh, a surge right now. So, yeah. Uh, well,
1: I know that some of the some of the reports are showing that you know people who are applying for mortgages right now is drastically up. Uh, historically speaking, over the last, you know, year or or what have you. Yep. And I don't know if that directly translates to how many properties are closing, because I think many of these statistics and numbers come from people who are doing just that, who are refinancing. Um, I know that, uh, you know, I passed on this information to quite a few friends of mine over the last year. Every time rates drop, I send out, um, you know, a little bit of blurb to my clients to let them know what's happening. Uh, but there there is a cost, as you said associated with refinancing, and sometimes that doesn't equate to the difference between the payment that you'd be making on a monthly basis and/or the duration of that loan. Can you, can you elaborate on when would be an ideal time to refinance, or rather what parameters somebody should probably consider refinancing, like what rates they currently have that would make it worthwhile?
0: Sure. So the, you know, there's not one set rule. What, what people have heard is if you can save a full percent, uh, the common the, the common theme is if you can save 1% on a loan, it's usually worth refinancing. Well, it's, it, there's not really one set answer. So there's two, you know, when, when somebody inquires about refinancing, uh, you know, you really have to break it down. It's, what's the goal? So because most people, the w- only way to drop their payment with the refinances of what people really want <laughs> most of the time is, uh, is to go back to a 30-year term. So if you've been in your loan for five, six years, now you're going back to a 30-year term. Well, all right, well, what's important? Is cash flow important right now? So do you, by all means, have to just reduce your monthly payment to get it as low as possible? So that it helps your monthly cash flow, maybe helps pay other bills, things like that. Or do you want just the luxury again? These loans don't have prepayment penalties. You want the luxury of the lowest payment, and then you can always throw extra money towards this at any point. Or is your goal to maybe shorten the term? So let's say you've been in a 30-year loan and you're five years in. Maybe now a 20-year is more attractive, you're shaving off five years, or, or 15 years more attractive, where the rate, you know, the rate is a little better versus a 20-year or 30-year is a 15 year so you're shaving 10 years off the of life loan at that point but with a 20 year or 15 year if you're shortening the term your payment is almost always going to go up right. so are you comfortable paying more so it's really it's finding that balance in you know between the closing cost and the monthly savings if let's say you're going back to 30 year, what's that break-even point what's the goal with the property how long do you plan to own it things like that if somebody's only going to be living in the property for another year or two a refinance probably doesn't make sense Right, because they'll never make up the savings that they were getting because of the closing costs. So in every state varies with the closing costs and title insurance costs and things like that. So it's really just evaluating what the needs are, just like when you bought a home, like what kind of monthly you know, monthly payment you're comfortable with, things like that. It's just a little different now. What's the goal with the property? What's the goal here? Like, are you comfortable paying more? You know, we, we see a lot of people inquiring about 15-year loans right now, which it's um, – you know, it, it's great to to make, have a huge interest savings um, slash those that, you know, the interest basically in half of uh, yes. what you pay for a 30 year, as long as you can swing the higher payment.
1: Right, right. Yeah. And I think it, just like everything in real estate, what your lifestyle goals are, how long you think you're going to be in a place, all of that factors into making this sort of decision.
0: Exactly. Um, and, you know, really, like, Breaking down all of this, there's two main questions when I'm first talking to a, a potential borrower. What you know, it, don't, don't let me tell you what your maximum amount that you can qualify is because it's probably going to be more than you want to spend. What's your monthly payment comfort level? So basically what we're looking at is everything but utilities, principal, interest, taxes, insurance, mortgage insurance. What's that monthly payment comfort level and how much do you want to spend for the transaction? How much do you have available that you're comfortable letting go of? for down payment and closing costs. And from those two numbers, we can really guide you towards a range. So, you know, one of the important things before you talk to a lender for this process, it's a good idea to at least have a grasp of those two numbers because that's what it's ultimately going to get to.
1: Right. Right. And that's the most practical side of it, right? It's like, okay, well, how much money am I putting out of pocket? And what is it going to cost me on a monthly basis for, the duration of my time in this new property. That's exactly right. All right. Yeah. That's the same thing that I kind of, uh, you know, I referenced to all of my clients, especially first time home buyers or people who are really just starting to consider the process of purchasing a home. I ask the exact same question. It's just, you know, how much money or capital do you actually have to spend right now? And, you know, sometimes when people are purchasing properties, they're going to be borrowing money from friends and family, or pulling money out of 401ks. Can you uh, explain a little bit about the down payment money track record or the history of where that money comes from and what people are allowed and not allowed to do when they're purchasing?
0: Sure. So most programs, we're gonna be looking back 60 days or two bank statements from the time you're under contract. So if in that period, there are any large deposits, typically those, do- those deposits are going to get questioned. Where did they come from? So like if, uh, if on a bank statement, you get your pay automatically uh, put into your, uh, de- uh, auto-deposited into your bank account, well, it's going to show something that says payroll or something of the sort. And, you know, that's easy to, to show. It usually just shows right on the statement without additional documentation. But let's just say you had $5,000 or $2,000, uh, and, you know, in cash, cash or, <laughs> or somebody gave you a gift um, yeah. and you just deposit that check. Well, okay. Where did that, you know, who gave you those funds? Can you provide us a copy of the check um, so that we can verify that that's where it came from? If it's from a family member or, or an allowable gift source, we're going to have everyone fill out a gift letter for the process. But if it's cash, you got a little bit of an issue. Now, most programs, again, any deposit that's 50%, uh, less than 50% of your qualifying income, so qualifying mortgage income, less than 50% is typically not going to get questioned. But if there's a series of similar deposits, then an underwriter absolutely may ask, where, you know, where is this money coming from? Where do, what is this chain of deposits? So the, the point is they want to make sure they, being underwriters, want to verify that you're not borrowing money for the down payment. The only money that you're allowed to borrow for a down payment is if it's your own asset. So it's a loan security against your own asset. So like a 401k loan, Well, 401k is your money. You're just, mm-hmm. you're, you're allowed to take a, a, a loan for buying a home or for various reasons, hardships, things like that. So it's your own money, you're just borrowing against it. That is allowed. Or if it, you, let's say you own another property and you have a home equity line of credit again you own that property you have this line of credit that's secured against that that's allowed but if you took out a credit card and you just took out a five thousand dollar cash advance on a credit card not allowed it's gotta be the only borrowing is against a secured asset so how do people get around that sometimes well maybe there's a family member or let's say a, um, a person that's not going to be on the loan but will be living a domestic partner or a spouse if, if one spouse has poor credit um, so money can be gifted to the borrower to purchase the property. And then it's just a specific process, but cash in, in like the true form of cash. If you just deposit into a bank account, it's typically problematic in, in the mortgage process. Now again, we're looking back 60 days, what happened two years ago, a year ago, six months ago, it's been in your statement. It's what's called seasoned the funds. There's no way we would even know about that. So it's been in your account. And it typically wouldn't come up. But in that 60-day basically look back, that's that's what's being honed in on. And then once you're under contract, you got to watch any large deposits at that point going forward. So 60 days back through settlement, you just got to be very cautious.
1: Right, right. And there's some other things that, uh, that we always tell our clients not to do once they go under contract and they're in the process of getting or obtaining a mortgage. Um, can you elaborate on some of those guidelines that you give clients? Yeah, uh, yeah,
0: absolutely. So, you know, you've done, you've gotten to the point we've pre-approved you, you're, you're about to go under contract or you're under contract. Now's not the time you want to make any drastic changes. So when it comes to credit, you want to keep everything status quo. Don't apply for new credit. You know, you, you're obviously going to have to maybe furnish this house. Maybe you've got the furniture ready, or maybe you need to buy a whole new house full of furniture. But now's not the time to get that store credit card right. because it's a hard credit pull. And now you're, um, now you're applying for new credit. You're increasing your debt ratio. Um, so it's, it's just not once you're under contract to buy a home, you've done everything you can to get to the point of home ownership. You've got to keep it that way. Yeah. And through closing. So it's um, so you just got to be careful. You don't, you don't want to close credit accounts. You don't want to open new credit accounts. Closing credit accounts actually can hurt you. You know, if you let's say you only have three, four open trade lines and trade lines being are like one line of credit. So like you have a credit card, you have a car loan. Each of those are called trade lines in the mortgage world. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes closing one of those accounts can actually hurt your score because you just effectively wiped out a line of credit that was available to you and if you have if, if you're more maxed out or have higher balances on other credit lines where well, you just wiped out some of your overall borrowing power that hurts credit scores so it's just you want to keep everything status quo don't open don't close in some cases when you're speaking to a lender they might provide advice about things you should do or maybe something has to be paid off to get your debt ratio within the tolerance to allow mm-hmm. the allowable limits and, you know, that's a conversation that you're going to have with your lender at that time to determine what's needed to get you the loan. But, you know, everything's status quo on the credit side. Jobs, big issue. Don't leave, you know, if it, don't leave your job. Don't start the next job. If you're going to have a job change during the process or you think it's about to happen, you've got to notify your lender as soon as possible because it does come up more often than you think. Or somebody's changed jobs and didn't inform us. And now we've got to qualify them with the new, with the new job.
1: There have been instances
0: where people have stopped, you know, left their job and started their dream business. Big problem in the mortgage world. So, you know, if you're W2 employee, it's a lot easier an issue to get around. It's it's assumed that that job is going to continue work for a company an established company. You're getting a, a standard rate of pay you go and start your dream job in the middle of this process. Well, lenders, when you're self-employed, typically want a two-year track record and because they need to see your tax returns to see what you're actually claiming. Just because you mm-hmm. earned a set amount, well, now you're a business owner, you've got business expenses. What are those so if there's no if there's no tax returns to see what you're claiming to the government as your income, then there's no way to know what you're truly earning. And you, know, you just shot yourself in the foot for basically two years from being able to now purchase a home. So
1: All right. well so let's let, let me uh, backtrack a little bit. So some of those changes to your credit and or job in the middle of the process of purchasing a property. So once you're under contract, you've already been pre-approved and the actual loan application process is happening, you don't want to make pretty much any changes to your financial picture including income, expenses, debt, etc. Um, and then in terms of like what you actually need to qualify for that mortgage on the onset, that differs if you're self-employed and or if you have a job and changing those two things on the onset can have, you know, drastic effects for um, for self-employed people versus, you know, standard employed W-2 holding, uh, you know, a, a clients what are some of the things that people need if they are self-employed in order to get similar financing terms and programs?
0: Sure. So, so a W-2 employee, what we're asking for your most recent 30 days pay stubs the last year or two of W-2s um, and, and technology starting to take this over too. you work for a larger company. Odds are, we can probably get a lot of that electronically um, without even right. providing the documents. But you know, in, in general, last 30 days of pay stubs, most recent two years, W-2s in general, COVID has changed that now because the, the fear of being furloughed or anything like that. So Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac and, and the, the agencies and, and FHA, everyone's imposed guides to say, well, we want to make sure within five days now that they're still employed, the bar still employed at the same pay rate as what they stated on the application and what we've seen on prior pay stubs. So a final pay stubs now needed before closing too, the most recent, but just before closing, uh, which is a a bit newer.
1: Uh Uh,
0: but, uh, so the, so it's easy. So when you're W two, it's much easier because we're qualifying you at that gross income. What's your base salary, let's say, and we're going to divide that by 12 and, that's your qualifying income in, in the most common form. Um, right.
1: So just, And just like taxes, it's a little bit more simple <laughs> to file all that documentation when you are employed and have a
0: W-2. Exactly. Right. When you're self-employed, again, the only way to know how much you truly earn is what you're telling the IRS that you earned in the past year or two for your tax return. So
1: your schedule C (laughs) or whatever,
0: or if you have a different type of business, you might get K ones, depending on what your corporation structure is. So that is the only way to show what your income is as as self-employed. So for, for conventional financing. So depending how long your business has been in existence, and again, we'll just talk conventional right now, FHA is automatically two years, VA two years. But uh, conventional financing, if your business has been in existence for five or more years, typically we only need one year of tax returns. Less than five years, you typically need two uh, two years of tax returns. So we're taking, all right, what was your, 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 your profit from the business um, at less all expenses? And then if you paid yourself like a salary, things like that, you know, that'll be added back. But basically, what was the net number from the business that, that was, And again, depending on the business structure, what was the net number from the business? So not your gross earnings. It's gross earnings, less all expenses that the, the ability to write off a lot of expenses can be advantageous for tax time. But when it comes time to loan time, you know, is there enough qualifying <laughs> income to qualify for what you're trying to actually spend? So that's where right. it becomes problematic. It's it's you're, you're looked at in a totally different realm because it's really what you're claiming from your business is what's going to be used on, on qualifying income for a mortgage.
1: Right. Okay. So the actual application process is, includes, a, I mean, the process itself is very, very much the same, whether you're self-employed or have a, you know, a, a traditional employer, but the circumstances and the paperwork that you look at are a little bit different. The actual process, once it's in underwriting, is similar. You want to make sure that you don't have any changes. Um, But there are some things that can cause hiccups along the way. But I think most of that generally has to do with the property itself, right? We have something that's called an appraisal process. Can uh, Can you tell us about an appraisal and, and how that might affect your ability to purchase. Sure.
0: So there's, there's an appraisal and there's a home inspection. The home inspection is really you're hiring somebody that a lender doesn't need to see your, your home inspection, but you're hiring somebody to really get into the, the bones of the property and the structure of the property and, right. and, um, you know, get down behind, you know, behind the scenes as much as they can to see what's going on the appraisal is a, a, an opinion of value by a licensed appraiser that is uh, verifying the value of the property. So appraisal value, home inspection is structure. So the appraisal is what a lender's concerned with because that's the collateral in the property. If for some reason worst case happens and the bank had to take back the property because the borrower didn't pay, the collateral on the loan is the property. They take back the property. So they want to make sure they being a lender wants to make sure that you, that the property that they are lending this money against is valued at what you're paying, what you're paying for. So. Right. They're
1: not going to give you more money than what the property is actually worth.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And that's what your down payment is based off of. Uh, So. So when a uh, a lender, uh, when, that, then when that appraisal is done, what they're reviewing and appraiser is looking for is, are there comparable sales within the past three to six months within a, a short distance of the property, depending on the, uh, if it's urban or if it's suburban or if it's rural, those distances get a little further in the city. It's going to be a lot closer of a proximity versus a rural setting because houses aren't so densely packed. Uh, right. So the um, they're looking at comparable sales within a thirty to sixty day window, or sorry, three to six month window uh, of similar properties. So same room count, similar square footage, similar style, to see. All right, is the value that's being paid here a good sense of what's been paid for uh, with other sales in the market? And if you're in that range, uh, you're going to be in good shape. If you're trying to overpay for a property, you know you could have a value issue.
1: So. Right. Yeah, so when we do uh, as a as a realtor, when we're looking at properties with clients and we're going to submit an offer, we give what's called a comparative market analysis or a CMA that pulls properties in the area that are similar based on location, based on bedrooms, bathrooms, square footage, and then any other features like outdoor space, parking, et cetera. And those are all things that are taken into consideration when an appraisal is done as well. So on our end, we do a little bit of that work, but when it comes to the financing, that's really important too, right? So we have to We have to make sure that, say, a client's only putting three percent down, which is which is basically the minimum that somebody can put down on a property. Let's say they're getting an assist or something similar. That's going to end up, you know, uh, often people will offer a set amount to say they'll they'll give asking price for a property, say it's listed at 400,000, but maybe it's priced a little bit high compared comparatively. So other properties in the area, maybe sell at like 375, 380, this one's priced at 400. And so we're really close to what could be an appraisal value. And if somebody's only putting 3% down, that could be a problem, right? So if an appraisal comes back and it says, Hey, you know, this is only worth 375 and that difference of 3% doesn't actually equate to, uh, you know, the, three, the 3% different in the change from the value to what the sales price is, they're not going to be able to get financing, right? What are some options that people have if that circumstance comes up?
0: Sure. So number one is you can try and negotiate with the seller. <laughs> like, hey, right? now we have an appraisal that was done. Um, and a seller might typically want to see the appraisal report to see what, the comp- what comparable sales were used. Look, this is it. all an appraisal is, is an opinion of value. Sometimes that opinion is incorrect, so you know there's an option to dispute that appraisal, and right. you can have um, uh, whatever sources try and come up. Whether it's whether it's both agents coming up with both sources, sure. or maybe the buyer has some knowledge about a sale, but as long as a sale has completed. Uh, then that can be try and be used for disputing that value. Because again, it's an opinion it's, that's not always right. You could send in 10 different appraisers and they might come up with 10 different values on a place uh, on the same exact property. So it's, it's not a specific science, but they should be within the same range in a perfect world. But that doesn't mean that sometimes mistakes are made or things are overlooked. So there's that dispute process. Um, if that doesn't work, you know, then there's the negotiation with the seller, which is possible or or there look, you can pay whatever you want for a property as long as you've got the money to do it, so is there a way <laughs> right. to um to obtain uh additional funds to pay more for a property you know we're starting to see that a little bit now because it's such a competitive market where there's a lot of bidding going on on the same property, so you're starting yeah. to see all right, well, there's this overpayment, and that's you know starting to sometimes there can be appraisal issues if there's not. If some of these sales haven't closed yet, that have been in this competitive bidding process, and the prices are starting to escalate, well, until those sales are recorded and actually official, then there's the, the comparable sale can't be used. So right. um, you're just starting to get into, you know, with this aggressive bidding going on right now in our market. Um, that you know, it it has to sort of catch up a little bit with those sales actually have to ha- actually have to settle in order to use them for comparable sales for other properties. So yeah. there's, there's options, um, but with that limited down payment, you know, you are a little bit more limited. If you're putting 20% down, well, maybe there's a way to make it work then if it didn't come in where you needed, maybe there's a way that you still can pay what you agreed to for the property if the seller's not willing to negotiate, but now you only put uh, 10% down because the basis becomes the lesser of the purchase price or appraisal value. That's the basis right. of your loan.
1: Hey guys, I wanted to interrupt real quick with a little pro tip. When we submit an offer document to the seller of a property, that's what we call the standard agreement for the sale of real estate here in Philadelphia and in the state of Pennsylvania, we can include certain contingencies in that offer document. For most agreement of sales, that's going to include a mortgage contingency, which says, hey, here are the terms under which I'm gonna be borrowing money to purchase this property. And it'll include usually an inspection contingency so that you can have the property inspected without losing your deposit along that process. That way you can have the inspection. If something comes up, you can negotiate or you can decide to walk away. In the case where you're close to the purchase amount in your financing, meaning you're only putting 3% down or you're only putting 5% down and the price of the property is kind of high for the market, I will always recommend to my clients to include an appraisal contingency. That lets the seller know, hey, this property has to appraise at a certain amount in order for me to get financing. And if it doesn't, we're gonna have to renegotiate. And that can be advantageous to you, especially in a competitive market where prices of property are a little bit high or you're getting highly leveraged when it comes to your financing. So if you have more questions, feel free to reach out. Stay tuned. Rob's going to explain a little bit more about the entire financing process. All right. Okay.
0: Yeah. So, and again, like cash is, King, you know, if you have cash to pay for a property, you can pay whatever you want for a property. It doesn't, you know, appraisals. appraisals only come into the equation in the sense when there's a lender that has to, has to approve an appraisal and because, because you're obtaining a loan. But if you want to pay cash for a property, then, you know, you can do an appraisal for your own informational purposes, but there's nobody breathing down your neck because you're not have to, you don't have to obtain the financing to buy the property.
1: Right. And if you do, you just have to make sure that the financing that you're getting is less than the value of the property itself. Correct. Right. Okay. So, um, aside from your standard, uh, and I, I know that you do predominantly residential mortgages, but there are other types of mortgages that folks get, um, when it comes to, Buying commercial properties, people can still get traditional, you know, uh, residential mortgages for multifamily. Correct.
0: Correct. Up to four units. Up to a four-unit building is considered residential.
1: Right. And this is this is one of my favorite uh, my favorite ways of financing properties. I think it's one of the smartest things that people can do if they're interested in real estate as an investment, because you can purchase a property that has multiple units in it and still get similar financing terms, lower interest rates than if you bought uh, as a commercial property itself, live in one of the units and actually pay your mortgage with the income from the other units. Now, is that something that you guys take into consideration when you're looking at, uh, at financing a particular property? Yep. Um, yep, so yep. Can, you, can, you, um, can you explain a little bit of how that Equate[s] whether it's looked at as like a future asset or income.
0: Sure. So the so let's say a primary residence. So you're buying a four unit property. You're going to live in one of the units. Rent out the other three units. Well, those other three units, 75% of the fair market rent from those units, either a, if there's an existing lease or fair market rent is determined by an appraiser, 75% of those other three units can be used to help qualify as qualifying income, which is huge. That gets you that, that, you know, let's say you're, um, you know, because on a four unit is probably going to be more expensive than a single family uh, that your depends exactly what you're buying, but that it allows you for more qualifying income, which you haven't even received yet but it's allowed, you're allowed to take 75%. That 25% they take away is what's considered a vacancy factor. If the vacancy, if their property was vacant for several months, a figure, a quarter of the year, you couldn't find a tenant. That's why they allow, it. that's why they take that. But it's, that's huge. I mean, that, that's the difference sometimes between people qualifying, and not qualifying on an investment property. Let's say you're not going to live in the place on, a, on an investment property. We can take 75% of that fair market rent as determined by an appraiser or a lease to help qualify on an investment property. Again, that's sometimes the difference between qualifying and not qualifying. So it's, it's as attractive as it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, and while we're on that, you know, if somebody owns a property already, they're living in it, they're going to convert it to being a rental. Um, what, what a conventional loan allows for is that we can use 75% of a lease that's starting within 60 days of your closing, uh, 75% of that lease, as long as you've received, uh, verified that you've received your security deposit, and you have that signed lease as well, we can use seventy five percent of a vacating primary residence to help offset that mortgage payment. So again, you haven't received the dime of rent yet, but we can help offset that to then buy the next place. So it's it's been it's as favorable as it's ever been
1: when you're yeah. buying something
0: with an investment component.
1: Yeah, because I mean, then folks who may, maybe we're looking at purchasing. You know, a three or four hundred thousand dollar single family home can potentially afford a six hundred thousand dollar property because there's two units and one's going to be giving them income, um, and that can be considered. Is that is absolutely? That
0: and and yeah. you know, as as I'm sure you will allude to, just it's harder and harder to find because they are extremely <laughs> popular and people True. people want them, and you get a lot of investors in play with multifamilies, so you're up against a lot of cash offers. So you just have to. You know, be able to come in with as strong an offer as possible because you might be up against some some serious competition from people that have the means to maybe pay for the property outright.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's an extremely competitive market, especially for small multifamilies. You have a ton of investors coming in trying to do renovations and value add and things like that. Um, it's definitely helpful to work with somebody like myself who is up to speed on uh, right. on the marketplace and, and uh, you know, look at all of your options when you're considering purchasing. A lot of my clients and listeners will have, you know, a ton of questions for you based on their personal circumstances moving forward. Um, and for those of you who are just meeting Rob for the first time. Uh, Rob, you've been in Philadelphia for quite some time. I know you went to school. uh, You have a bachelor's degree in finance from Penn State University and an MBA in accounting from Temple. Um, How long have you been doing this?
0: Yeah, I got in in 2003, so a little over 17 years at this point. And uh, I I came into the business. I knew you needed a mortgage to buy a house. That was my, my knowledge of the mortgage industry. (laughs) And, <laughs> right, uh, that's everybody. <laughs> I, I, I had a friend um, that her father owned a, a mortgage company, and this was in the you know basically the middle of the boom, and he just needed qualified people that could just really help get files through to closing. So I became a processor in in the mortgage industry, what with the ability to basically start growing a book of business, and it was it was really the best way in my opinion to learn the business by getting other loan officers deals to the settlement table you learn really quickly what you need to submit to an underwriter um and what's in what's how to how to really compose a file so that you get to the settlement table without any hiccups so really i I did that for about three four years before i really then um i think it it was around year four or five that i ultimately gave up the processing and just started Mm -hmm. selling full-time Nice,
1: yeah. Nice. And so, uh, transaction-wise, is this is this the biggest year that you've had? I know last year was really busy. Yeah, yeah. Every
0: year, every year we're growing. So this will be the year that we, you know, we get over the hundred million mark. So probably, it's tough to say right now, but we'll probably finish somewhere around one hundred and fifty million would be my guess. Finance for somewhere around 450 ish transactions between purchases wow, and refinances. Congratulations. Yeah. So this is, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a year, another year of growth, which is great. And, um, just trying to really manage, you know, manage everything, manage the team, keep a similar process so that the, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's our reputation on the line and customer service is important to me. So just, trying to um you know keep that same level of customer satisfaction while growing right. and uh and that right. that's that's the fun part.
1: Yeah, I mean that's honestly Rod, that's one that's one of the reasons that you're my my one of my favorite lenders to work with. You're super available. I know that I can shoot you a text uh not always at the most appropriate time. I'm sure I bothered you at dinner more than once. Uh, this part, but of the job. part of you're always attentive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely appreciate it. And I know that my clients do. Um, is, there, is there anything that you'd like to share uh, about what you do or for potential clients moving forward?
0: Yeah. So don't, don't be afraid by that 20% down that your parents have told you about. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> Classic. It, yeah, it, that, that's number one. It's amazing that you know I, I still get so many people that call and say, well, I don't have the 20% down. What's available? everything's available like we three five and ten percent down we do as many loans if not more than 20 percent down these days modern lending had to catch up with the modern borrower and it, right. it happened and you know three five ten percent down that doesn't mean that some you know putting more downs can't be more advantageous for terms sometimes but you put down, 10% down, you're not getting any different in interest rates typically than 20% down. So it's don't be scared off that you don't have that 20% down. That's one. Um, Two is, uh, you know, just the the best thing you can do, again, is like those those two things that we talked about earlier. Have a sense of what you're trying to pay a month. If you're trying to stick to a $1,000 monthly payment, you better have a lot of money available if you're trying to buy a five hundred thousand dollars house. You know, you just have to you have to be realistic. You have to do what's comfortable with you because you've got to live with that loan over your head, and you want to make sure that you're able to live the life you want to live after you buy that house. So <laughs> right. whatever that is, that you know, cash for yeah, whatever and whatever. Board, that is. Right? Some people are fine being highly leveraged. That's a, it's okay as long as you qualify. So um, you know, have a sense of how much money you have available. Am I going to need a gift like, or am I going to need to pull out from a retirement loan maybe to, to obtain house? Or do I need to get it, you know, one of these grants or down payment assistance loans, things like that? Um, you know, just the, that's the that's the best thing you can do to prepare before you talk to a lender. So you're sort of not like blindsided and then all of a sudden like feeling pressured that I need to spend this much or I can spend this much. Now I'm going to spend this much. So have right. a sense of those two yeah. things. And yeah, it's it, it, we, we'll, we'll make the financing as easily as humanly possible, make the most challenging thing, you know, be be uh, selective in, in the place that you want to live. That's going to make right. your life easier, Catherine. That's going to make everyone's you know, life easier. If you really, if you can um, have a sense of really what you want, what you're looking for, and then the financing will fall in line.
1: Right. And so in terms of the process and folks, Uh, who are listening, who are interested in getting financing the next steps for going through pre-approval process and actually, you know, starting to look at homes and that sort of thing. Uh, We can do everything almost digitally now. And that I mean, that has been the case for quite some time. Uh, but especially with COVID, the entire transaction—you um, know—some transactions right now are in, almost, are entirely digital, and people don't even meet in person. But I know at least for for reaching out to you and for initiating that process, um, I'm going to go ahead and put a link on my site along with the podcast, so folks can you know read a little bit more about you, and get some questions answered, and be able to reach out to you directly. But for for all of my clients, I usually just. Put them right through to your pre-approval page. Right, folks can apply online and um and start that process. Absolutely,
0: right? yeah. It's a ten fifteen minute process. Or if they want to have a conversation first, you always happy to to schedule a time to talk. Um, you know, so we can just give them some little instructions with how to fill it out, things like that. But it, it's very simple. And uh, we we had to figure out. You know, the, we, the mortgage industry was sort of built for what's occurring right now with COVID. <laughs> I mean, we had to take a, a six thousand person company and make the entire process able, everyone able to work from home. And it's the, the mortgage industry is thriving right now because uh, you know it was really getting ready to, to take on the digital world if it wasn't there already. So
1: right. Yeah. And you, and you were already working from home before that in the middle of the night when people call you and (laughs) and try to get financing. My my
0: laptop is like a part of my body at this point.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know, I know that I and and all my clients appreciate it. Um, you're one of the fastest closers and one of the most reliable in the city. So thank you. Um, and, uh, and you and I have, uh, hopefully get a chance to catch up soon in the near future uh when we're allowed to socialize a little bit more um but we think we've known each other for what like it's been almost a decade i think at this yeah point. yeah, so. yeah. <clears throat> well i'm uh i'm excited to work with you in the future i'm going to go ahead and put links to your site your contact information under the podcast and for folks who are listening if you have any questions rob is available as he says so you can give him a call or shoot him a text and uh and start that process
0: awesome thank you very much
1: Yeah, thanks, Rob. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Philly Proper Podcast. To reach out to our guest, Rob Wishnick, be sure to visit my website at phillyproper.com. I'm gonna include the link. You can go ahead and submit your information to get your pre-approval started. Rob will answer any questions that you have about financing your next residential purchase. And if you're interested in connecting to some of our commercial lenders, maybe you're interested in investing in real estate, I can absolutely help you with that as well. Be sure to subscribe to my podcast wherever you're listening, Apple, Spotify, or even here on my site at phillyproper.com. Till next time, I'm your host, Katherine Blessington, and thanks again for listening to the Philly Proper Podcast.